us truth from your word. Lord, I pray for us as we reflect on all that is before us, this banquet of truth that is before us, Lord, that you would help us, Lord, to hear and to comprehend, to believe and to apply. Lord, I pray that your spirit would be at work bringing comfort where needed, conviction where necessary, and the strength that we need, Lord, to respond as we ought. Lord, I pray that you would increase our faith, that you would increase our love for you and for one another. Lord, I, I pray for help in my weakness to proclaim your truth well. Bless your people through the preaching of your word, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you are visiting with us this morning, welcome. We are so glad that you are here, and I just want you to, to have an idea of what you have jumped in the middle of as it relates to our passage this morning. We are in the process of working through Paul's second letter in the Bible to the Corinthian church, and we find ourselves in a section where Paul has been both defining and defending his ministry to a church who had fallen under the influence of, of, of false teachers, a church that had their problems of their own spiritual immaturity, and a church that was really in danger of believing a bunch of lies about the Apostle Paul. And so Paul writes to bring them in line lovingly, but also to remind them what is true about himself and about the ministry of the gospel. And if you are visiting with us, every day that we are in God's Word is a glorious day. But today we find ourselves in, in, in one of the most beautiful descriptions, not just of the, the ministry of the apostles, but of what we have been called to as followers of Christ as well. Not only are we reminded this morning to, 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 to take comfort and joy and delight in what Christ has done for us, but we are also reminded of the great privilege that we have as followers of Christ to represent the God who saved us and to share the truth of his gospel with those who so desperately need it. I want to begin by reading a quote this morning from R.C. Sproul. Deals with salvation. It says, we want to be saved from our misery, but not from our sin. We want to sin without misery, just as the prodigal son wanted inheritance without the father. The foremost spiritual law of the physical universe is that this hope can never be realized. Sin 
always accompanies misery. There is no victimless crime, and all creation is subject to decay because of humanity's rebellion from God. Wow, Sam, way to start us off on a downer, right? <laughs> well, I chose this quote to, 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 to take off from because it, it really raises some important assumptions uh, that need to be questioned about our understanding about the gospel. We use that word a lot around here, do we not? We preach the gospel. We proclaim the gospel. We are a gospel-focused church. So that begs the question, what is the gospel, right? Well, there are four books in the New Testament. We call them gospels. Is, is that the same thing? What's the purpose of the gospel? You guys use the word saved a lot. What, what's salvation? These are, these are all questions that we need to wrestle with and answer correctly, right? One would think. If salvation is our greatest need and the gospel is the only way to be saved, then as Christians, we need to know what we're talking about. And we need to know why we should be sharing it with others, right? Some of this may seem elementary to some of you or repetitive to some of you this morning, but do not tune out because we are all in the habit of either making wrong assumptions about the gospel or taking for granted essential realities about it. This morning, Paul defines the ministry of the gospel. And we're going to tackle this passage under three main points. The first is we're going to look at a ministry that is grounded, grounded in reverence. Reverence. Secondly, we're going to consider a ministry compelled by love. And, and this point is going to be where we spend most of our time this morning. So when you think I'm bogging down and, and point three is going to take us to two o'clock this afternoon, understand that, that, that it's with a purpose that we are so long in point two. And finally, we're going to consider a message of reconciliation. And really, it is my prayer that as we work through this incredible passage from 2 Corinthians, that each and every one of us would find greater joy in our reconciliation to God through faith in Jesus Christ. For those that believe, and for those that do not believe, that today is the day that you recognize that this is the message that you not only need to hear, but you need to believe. Because without it, you will perish. So God, help us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 today. First, let's look at verses 11 and 12, a ministry grounded in reverence. The Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. 
But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is also known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you calls to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. Paul uses an important phrase here, fear of the Lord. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord. Well, what on earth is he talking about? Well, to get a better idea, it's important to look back at what we saw last week in verses 1 through 10 of chapter 5. So I want to read verses 6 through 10 so we can understand what Paul is referring to when he says therefore. Because when we see the word therefore in Scripture, we need to back up and read what comes before it because that's what it's there for. To remind us, to keep in mind the context. So Paul, writing about his ministry, writes this in verse 6. He says, So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. Now remember, in in verses 1 through 5, he's writing about the the, the trials and, and perils of living in our earthly bodies when compared to the glorious body that is to come when we are with the Lord. So he's already written about the the sufferings that come with being an an apostle and a minister and and really living in a fallen world. And and so in verse 6, he kind of ties it all together. He says, listen, so we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord, that is, dead in this life and alive in the next. So whether we are home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So Paul is writing to believers about a day when we will stand before God and give an account for how we've lived our Christian lives. Now we made it clear last week, and I want to remind you again this week, that that the Apostle Paul is not writing about a judgment onto salvation or or, or, or whether a Christian's going to go to to heaven or hell. That that has been established in Christ Jesus. But we will give an account for how we've lived. What have we done with the salvation that we have been given in this life? And in verse 11, we see that that Paul's attitude in light of that is that he has a, a fear of the Lord. That word fear means a reverence or, or an awe as, 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 as it's revealed in Paul's desire to please God in everything and, and have his work stand up under judgment. Paul wants to, to stand before God and, and have God look at, at everything that was the ministry that he was entrusted with and have God look at that and say, yes, that is good. Way to be faithful, Paul. Paul says, listen, in light of the fact that that day is coming, I have a reverence for God. I have a fear of God. I don't want to stand before God and have him look at what I have done and have it be burned up because it was worthless. Again, still saved, but those things that, that, that we have wasted our time on and our lives on, those things will not last in eternity. So in light of this, Paul is doing everything that he can 
to please God. He wants to honor God. And this is a, a, a truth that applies to all of us, not just for those who lead in the church. Reverence for God leads to a desire to lead or, or persuade others to come to know him. Right? We want other people to come to know Christ. Not because we're trying to get notches on our belts. Oh, one more. We can't save anyone. <laughs> Only Christ can. But we want to be faithful, to, to, to plead with it. It's not an act when someone stands before you with the Word of God open and pleads with you to come to faith in Christ, to, to turn away from your sin, which is killing you, and turn in faith to the one who can give you life. That, that type of pleading flows from a realization that you are in danger and a love for you and a desire to see you experience the love of God in Christ Jesus. And this should be all of our attitudes. We want to see people come to know Christ. Christianity is not just one option in a long line of choices that lead to the Lord. Jesus makes exclusive claims about himself as being the only way to the Father. So, so if your understanding of the Christian faith is, yep, you know what, I, I, I've looked at it all and, 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 and this Christianity thing just kind of fits with where I'm at in life right now. You know, I could have gone with Buddhism or, or Islam or, or, or atheism or something else, but, but this kind of fits where I'm at. Well, then you don't really understand what you're saying, and you certainly don't understand what's at stake. These are matters of life and death. Paul understood it, and it shaped everything that he did. As we continue in these verses, in, in verse 11, we, we, we see that, that Paul and his command, companions were securing Christ, which caused them to overcome the fear of man. That's, that's where he says, but, but what we are is known to God, and, and I hope it is known also to your conscience as well. You know us. You know us. You, you know how we have carried ourselves among you. These people that are coming in that are saying these bad things, that are telling these lies about me, they don't know me, but you do. Paul says, listen, I, I want to please God. I'm not worried about what these others are saying about me. In fact, the, the Corinthians were well aware of Paul's ministry and his reputation. And as Paul writes these things, and even as he continues into verse 13 about beside ourselves or in our right minds, he's writing to people that honestly should have known better. He brought the gospel 
to them. He lived among them. He took up a job so that they would not have to even support him financially. He wanted there to be no obstacles in his efforts to preach the gospel to them and their faith. You guys remember that from 1 Corinthians? Paul gave up things that he had a right to in order to care well for these brothers and sisters. They should have known better. But they did not. In fact, as, as Paul continues here in verse 12, he's contrasting his ministry with the ministry of those that were coming in, the false teachers and his opponents. Verse 12 he says, For we are not committing ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. I was like, listen, these, these people that are coming in, and, and it could be that he's making a reference to the Judaizers. You remember, they were the ones that came in and, and wanted the church to begin to adopt certain Jewish religious customs, outward things. But Paul says, no, my, my focus has been where? I want you to know and follow the Lord. Their motives are wrong. They're taking you somewhere you don't want to go. Remember what I taught you. It should have been a, a, a no-brainer for the Corinthians. They should have known better. But they were stuck in spiritual infancy. And brothers and sisters, that is what happens to us when we are stuck in infancy spiritually. When we lack a, a, a sincere and, and God-honoring reverence for God, when our lives are not truly set upon the things of God, we remain immature. And we go through seasons of that, each and every one, where we allow certain things to, to distract us or, 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 or cause us to, to, to doubt the goodness of God. And that lack of reverence leads to spiritual immaturity. And this is where the Corinthians was. Remember our study of 1 Corinthians? Paul lit them up over a host of issues, all that reflected that they were weak in their faith. We don't grow in our faith by having a checklist of things that we want to do or we feel like we ought to do. It's not a matter of works. We grow in our faith when we allow the Word of God to expand our understanding of, of, of the bigness of God. He's not something that we add to our lives to make it better. He is all-consuming. He lays absolute claim to every single area of our lives. Until we recognize that, that bigness, then we're not going to want to honor him in er every area of our lives. Oh, well, I'm going I'm to honor him with my tithe. I'm going to honor, honor him with my Christian service. But, 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 but keep your hands off of my entertainment. That, that, that's not how it works. And the thing is, God, when we see him as he is, when we revere him as we ought, this is not an oppressive it's a pathway to greater joy. It increases our faith. 
wish I could stay here longer, but we need to keep going. So, so, so let's move on to, to a mindset compelled by love, verses 13 through 17. The Apostle Paul continues, he says, For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. A mindset compelled by love. Verse 13 is the is defense against the charge that Paul had lost his mind. Paul was zealous for God's glory and he was jealous for the church to be devoted to God. And so when there were others that came in that, that, that threatened that devotion, that faithfulness, Paul stepped up to the fight. And, and there were some apparently from, from among his opponents who, who were beginning to question Paul's sanity. How, how can he do the things he, he does and, and say the things he says and endure what he endures? He's got to be nuts, right? This is God being beaten for the gospel. It's supposed to be nice and easy, right? I'm never going to get sick. I'm going to have all the money I ever need. Well, that wasn't Paul's experience. Paul's zeal for the right things, for the Lord and for his church, led to jealousy and, and, and lies from false teachers. And Paul's response is simple. Hey, listen, guys, if I'm, if I'm crazy, I'm crazy about God. And if I'm sane, I'm sane for your good. Oh, that the world would talk about us that way. But then in verse 14, Paul takes it another step up. He reveals the defining truth that shaped his understanding of his ministry. And may God shape our understanding of our Christian lives through these verses. Paul writes, for the love of Christ controls us. And that word controls is a powerful word in the original Greek language. Here's some ways that it's translated. To seize, to restrain, guard, afflict. I love that word. To, to hem in, to, to hold together, to, to compel. Okay, Paul's not talking about some mild influence in his life here, right? That's, that's obvious from, from what we see from this word. Afflict, that's, that's like when you get sick. We're, we're missing several people because they are afflicted with the flu. It's having a very compelling influence on their life, right? They're not going anywhere. They feel terrible. 
They're under its influence. Well, Paul says, listen, I've got a greater affliction in my life. I've been afflicted by the love of Christ. I can't do anything else. I have to serve him. I want to honor him. I want to please him. And Paul's not talking about just some existential idea of love. This is a love that, 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 that or, or this, his experience, his, this controlling is, is flows directly from his understanding of, of the love of Christ as revealed in the gospel. This literally shaped their view of everyone. What does Paul says? We, the love of Christ controls us and what? We have concluded this. We've come to this understanding because of the love of God. We don't view anyone according to the flesh. Brothers and sisters, all of us, every person, all of mankind is motivated by something. Some cases, sometimes we, we may feel like it's many things that, that motivate us. But it really does all come back to what is the overriding drive in our lives. And honestly, for most people, even Christians included, it's love of ourselves. Well, that's love of comfort, love of, uh, of the approval of man, love of the pleasure of this world, our comfort. But the proper response for the Christian is found in verse 14. It's a love that, that reveals itself in reverence. Look at verse 11. But it also changes our view of the world and everything in it. The love of Christ controls us. It hems us in. It's the, it's the guardrails that, that keep us on the Christian walk. And as a result, we have come to this understanding that one has died for all. Jesus died in, in the place of or on behalf of. That's what for means. One has died for all. Therefore, all have died. Paul is, is hitting on a, a central theme of the gospel. The, the, the death of Jesus is central. He died bearing the punishment for our sins. And that punishment is God's wrath. Therefore, all have died. Jesus becomes our substitute, his life for ours. Now we are received as sinless in him. Now that's something that's easy to pass over. We talk about that a lot. Oh yeah, it's great. I have the righteousness of Christ and, and Jesus bore my, my burden on the cross. Yes, that's true. But let it sink in. We spend a lot of time talking about how great Jesus is. We've worked through two of the Gospels. And we go back to them often. You stand where you stand, Christian, before God on the basis that not only that Jesus died bearing the punishment that you deserved, but also that he rose again that your life would be counted as righteous as he is. That's your standing. Now listen, we all struggle in this life. We all 
especially when we blow it, question how God could, could love or save any of us. Well, that's how. He sent a sacrifice that was sufficient to bear his wrath and who was also sufficient to make you as righteous as you could ever be in the sight of God. That's great news, brothers and sisters. Now understand, when Paul uses the word all, he's not preaching universalism here that Jesus died for all and that means everybody's going to be saved, but it's all in reference to those who believe. All who respond in faith will be redeemed. Doesn't get any better than that. You don't buy your way into the kingdom of God. You don't work your way into the kingdom of God. You receive access to the kingdom of God through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. In fact, verse 15 reveals that, that the death of Jesus changes more than simply our destination when we die. But it should also change our very lives. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who, was, who for their sake died and was raised. We live for him. So let me ask you, dear Christian, actually, let me ask you, wherever you are spiritually, who or what do you live for? And then if it's, if it's not him, Christian, then you are neglecting an important aspect of your faith. Verses 16 and 17, Paul clarifies his mindset even further about what it means to be controlled by Christ's love. He says, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So two of the greatest statements concerning our salvation in the Bible. We regard no one according to the flesh. In other words, we no longer perceive or understand people based on outward appearance. And this can be seen also as a, as a slam against the, the Paul's opponents who had come into Corinth and, and were causing trouble in the church. We saw in 1 Corinthians that many people in the church weren't that impressed with Paul anymore. And that's because there were those that come in and said, Look, this guy Paul, he's not even a great preacher and he's not that great to look at. I can relate. I was like, no, that, that, that's not how a Christian views the world. So we don't perceive people this way any longer. And, and understand that he's doing more than, than simply waxing poetic here. He's giving us a gift. We need to view people in light of their spiritual condition in order to have a proper perspective on what's important in this life. This enables, enables us to love difficult people and also it enables us to forgive them when we've been wronged. 
You see, Paul understood that, that people's greatest needs are spiritual in nature, and, and he made it his goal to address those needs by proclaiming the gospel. We regard, we understand, we view no one any longer based on outward appearance, but whether or not they are in or out of the faith, in Christ, are still in their sins. May we never lose sight of this reality. We want to do ministries of mercy and ministries of benevolence. We want to care for the temporary needs of those that God has entrusted with us. But we must never lose sight of the reality that there is no way that we can meet any person's need, their greatest need, by simply paying a bill. We must give them the words of life, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul admits that even at one point, his understanding of who Christ was, was incomplete. He says, we, we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, but we do so no longer. He'd come to understand that on the road to Damascus that Jesus, who he had been persecuting, truly is the Messiah. Verse 17 is, is one of my favorite verses in 2 Corinthians. It proclaims the wonderful reality for all who turn to Jesus in faith. If anyone is in, in Christ, he, she's too, is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, new has come. The new has come. So if you're in Christ this morning, you are a new creation. You're not who you once were. How many of us live in the prison of, of regret as we look back over the mistakes in our lives? Only seeing the, the failures and the ways that we've come up short are, are the ways that we may even lack in this life as our identity While the Bible spells out clearly that we are no longer who we once were. Some of you were fornicators and adulterers. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. Some of you were blasphemers and thieves. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. All of you were disobedient to parents. <laughs> but in Christ, you are a new creation. You've been, those old things have been put to death. New things have come. You have been brought from death to life. You have been brought from darkness to light. You've been made alive. You've been adopted. You've been transformed, redeemed, and restored to God. That is the defining truth about you, Christian. I want to sing again. This isn't just a description for Paul and, and those super Christians that we read about in the Bible. This is the description of all who have been reconciled to God through faith in Christ. All who have believed 
the gospel. And I use that word over and over again, and maybe you're thinking to yourself, well, Sam, you never answered those questions in the beginning about what is the gospel. Well, I haven't forgotten, but Paul answers them better. In verses 18 through 21, a message of reconciliation. Paul continues, all of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. So this ministry of reconciliation that, that Paul refers to involves the faithful proclamation of the message of reconciliation. The, the gospel is, is God's message of salvation to mankind. This is the truth that everyone must hear and know. This is the truth that must be believed. And it starts with the bad news. All of mankind is guilty before God. Actually, back up. It starts with God. It starts with God. God, who is perfect, God who spoke and, and created the world that we live in and created it perfectly. God who has no defect. God who lacks nothing. God who is pure and perfect. God who will not accept anything less than perfection. He created us. Began with Adam and Eve, yes, real people who only had really one rule, but they broke it. <laughs> Allowing sin to enter the world. We tend to treat sin like it's no big deal, especially our own, right? Now your sin, phew, that's bad, mine's not so bad. That, that's our attitude, right? And we often ignore our sin in order to focus on other people's sins. But we need to understand that the, the smallest transgression or breaking of God's law is punishable with eternal damnation. Torture. By God, eternally. If that doesn't sound fair to you, and I would really encourage you to, to understand or, or, or work to understand a greater picture of who God is. Spend some time reflecting on God's perfection, God's holiness. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 3 that each one of us are guilty of breaking God's law. Whether it be the, 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 what we would call the smallest sin of, of telling a lie to stay out of trouble or even telling a lie to not hurt someone's feeling to what we might consider the great sin of, of murder. Understand that a, that a lie 
no matter how small it may seem in our eyes, is a direct assault on a God who by nature is true in everything that he does. Think of it in those terms. It's an affront. It's telling him that he does not have the right to say what is true. I do. That's treason. God says, no. I don't work that way. We are all guilty before God. The good news of the gospel is is that God made a way through the perfect life and the sacrificial death on the cross of his son where God's wrath, his righteous anger against sin was satisfied and raised him on the third day as the proof that God was satisfied with the sacrifice that all who trust all who have faith, all who depend, these are all synonyms on what Jesus has done, will be restored to God. Because that's what's broken, is our relationship with God. Jesus died to to take what was broken, what was separate, divided by the wall of sin, and reunite us to God through His faithfulness. God is the purpose of the gospel, that we would be restored to him. Escape in hell, that's great. That's good news, but it's not the best news. Sin's forgiven, that's great. But that's not the best news. That's all means to the end, which is God. That's why... Paul uses that word reconciliation over and over again. I use the word restored sometimes to, to kind of give you a, a synonym because I know sometimes Bible words can be challenging, but restored doesn't go far enough. Reconciled has the idea of, of taking what was, what was broken relationally and making it whole again. And that is what Jesus does We were the offending party. God was offended. Jesus did all that was necessary to move that offense out of the way so that we could be called the children of God. And it doesn't stop there. All who have received this gift, God's grace, become his ambassadors in this lost and dying world. Think about that. Ambassadoria is a word that gets used a lot in American politics, right? We have people in different countries around the world representing the interests of the United States in those countries. They, they, they speak, or they're supposed to speak, only the directives and, and the message that they've been given from Washington, from the president, whoever that may be at a given time. That's their job. It's not to, to go and represent their own interest, but, 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 but to communicate to those countries in person the wishes of the leadership of our country. Paul says, listen, we've got a, a similar job. And, and that word ambassadors in, in the Greek has this idea of, 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 of a mature representation. We are called to reflect God's glory well in this world. 
We are called to be faithful to this message of the gospel in this world. Because for some people that we encounter, we are their understanding of what Christianity is all about, for better or for worse. But we represent a greater kingdom than the country that we live in. In fact, our, our choices, our priorities should reflect our heavenly home more than our earthly review of the gospel while on the cross God punished Jesus for our sins and when we turn to him in faith we are given credit for his perfect life it's more than just Jesus dying for our sins there's also that reception of something he takes our sin we receive his righteousness that's the great exchange that takes place We exchange our guilt for his righteousness, and this is the only way anyone can be restored to God, reconciled to God. And as I stated earlier, reconciliation to God is the goal of the gospel. We celebrate the baby in the manger every Christmas. And every Christmas Eve, I repeat the same phrase, he was born in the shadow of the cross. That was always his destination. It was always God's plan to make a way to re reconcile us to himself through his son. There is no plan B. Martin Luther has this to say about the great exchange between our sins and Christ's righteousness. He says, this is that mystery which is rich in divine grace to sinners, wherein a wonderful exchange, our sins are no longer ours, but Christ, and the righteousness of Christ, not Christ, but ours. He has emptied himself of his righteousness that he might clothe us with it and fill us with it, and he has taken our evils upon himself that he might deliver us from them. Learn Christ and Him crucified. Learn to pray to Him and despairing of yourself say, Thou, Lord Jesus, art my righteousness, but I am thy sin. Thou hast taken upon thyself what is mine and hast given to me what is thine. Thou hast taken upon thyself what thou wast not and hast given to me what I was not. I like that last night line. taken our sin and given us his righteousness brothers and sisters as we prepare our hearts for celebrating the Lord's Supper and, and what a perfect passage to prepare us to, to celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning we have to ask ourselves honestly is it time for a change in our lives as it relates to our spiritual priorities we we must Dear ones, come to terms with the seriousness of sin. We've been redeemed from them, yes. But until we learn to hate them, our priorities 
are not going to be what they need to be. We must grow in awe of the majesty of God. I, I tried and, and hopefully gave a little taste this morning for the greatness of God. We must, with the Spirit's help, be growing in our desire for God, to, to know Him and to honor Him, that we would be able to say with the Apostle Paul that we make it our desire to please Him, our aim to please Him. And finally, we must be burdened for those outside the faith. Because how can we say we understand the gospel and be okay with people that we know and love on the road to damnation without once opening our mouths to tell them there's a better way? There is a better way. If you are truly in the faith, you are on that better way. And the most loving thing that you can do is tell others of what Christ has done. We often point out that, as Gene did earlier, that the way we celebrate the Lord's Supper here at New Hope is that it's an open process. That means it's open to anyone 